Again, it's great to see you uh, all here uh, this morning. It is presently 82 degrees. And the good news is it's six degrees cooler than the forecast for this exact time of day. So we have a, a wind at three miles per hour. Uh, ten minutes ago it was only two and now it's three. So we can be thankful. But let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. Ch Titus chapter 2, we're going to be uh, returning to our study through the book of Titus this morning. And as we continue in our study through this book, we come this morning to Titus chapter 2, verse 9. And my goal uh, this morning is to cover verses 9 and 10. And if you want to give a title to the message today, it would be Adorning the Gospel on the Margins of Society. Adorning the Gospel from the Margins of Society. In last week's sermon, uh, Pastor uh, Carlos Limpiaco mentioned critical race theory and intersectionality, two ways of looking at the world that are in their heyday right now. Critical race theory, for those of you that do not know, is all about evaluating society around the notion of race, evaluating how white people have supremacy and how white people organize the institutions of society to keep people of color from power. Intersectionality is a way of thinking that applies that same perspective to other minority groups that are kept from having too much power. Many of those who hold to these theories want to see power taken from white heterosexual men who control society and see that power given to minority groups who are right now, they think, on the margins of society. The salvation that these marginalized groups hope for will come when they are moved from the margins of society to the center of society and given the power that right now belongs to those who are dominant. With that said, let me begin my message this morning by telling you about the most marginalized group in first century Rome. And that group was the slaves. Slavery was an unfortunate, unfortunate fact of life in first century Roman society and the Roman economy was built on the backs of slaves. Roman slavery was not based on race, but most slaves were actually foreigners who had been taken captive in war and purchased or purchased from foreigners who were selling slaves. Sometimes a Roman citizen who had fallen on hard times would sell himself into slavery and work as a slave until his debt was paid. Some 
Roman citizens would put their child up for collateral, for a debt. And then when they could not pay their debt, their child would become enslaved to the person that the parent owed money to. Some people in Roman society would dedicate themselves as slaves to work for a well-to-do person that they respected, figuring that a life of slavery under that person was better than a life of freedom on their own. Slaves in Roman society worked in virtually every occupation. Some of them worked in mines and on farms under harsh conditions, and others worked in private households or even for various levels of business and government working in very sophisticated jobs. Some slaves in Roman society suffered horribly, and many of them lived very comfortable lives. But even the slaves who lived comfortable lives would have preferred to be free if they had the choice. Slavery was never the ideal, which is why in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 23 and following, Paul tells Christian slaves that if they can become free, they should do that. And if they were free, they should not become slaves. It is said that 30 to 40 percent of Rome's population were slaves during the first century. And most of them blended right into society to such a degree that you couldn't tell by looking at them that they were actually slaves. To address this problem, the Roman Senate once considered a plan to make slaves wear special clothing so that they could be identified at a glance. But this idea was rejected because the Roman Senate did not want slaves to know how many of them there really were for fear that they would join forces and revolt, which is something they actually did do in later centuries. According to critical theory, Rome was all about keeping the power structure of free persons intact and keeping slaves as a group as disempowered as possible. In Roman society, there were mechanisms for slaves to become free. A master would sometimes allow a slave to purchase his freedom and let him go. Other times, a master would free his slave after the slave had served him well for a number of years. But that decision was always in the hand of the master, not the slave. After some slaves became free through official channels, they could actually become Roman citizens, but they would never be able to hold public office. And they would often find themselves being excluded from the refined circles of Roman society because of their past history as a slave. While many masters treated their slaves with fairness, slavery in first century Rome throughout the empire was an institution that tolerated injustices committed by these masters. Cruelty to slaves was not uncommon. And because of this, many slaves found slavery to be an abusive and degrading institution. Slave masters could mistreat their slaves without any fear of punishment because the slave had very little recourse to take any legal action against his master. 
The entire legal system of the Roman Empire was designed to keep the slave as disempowered as possible. So imagine being a Christian slave in the first century in the Roman Empire and wondering how God might possibly want to use you in serving His gospel purposes in the world in the midst of the circumstances that you find yourself. It is precisely with such people in mind that Paul speaks to Titus in Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, and tells Titus how he is to counsel and exhort the Christian slaves represented in his church on the island of Crete. Listen to what Paul says to Titus in Titus 2, 9 and 10, and these are the two verses that we will study today. He says to Titus, urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. This is the Word of God. Before we look at the specifics of what Paul tells Titus to direct slaves to do, let's make three very quick preliminary observations from this text. First of all, that Paul would tell Titus how he is to direct Christian slaves in the church clearly assumes that Titus is welcoming slaves into his church and assuming responsibility to be a shepherd to them. Paul clearly assumes that Titus is evangelizing slaves on the island of Crete and then receiving believing slaves into the church as brothers and sisters in the family of God with full rights and privileges of sonship and a seat at the Lord's table with everyone else in the church. We know from church history that many Roman slaves were attracted to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were attracted to a humble Savior who cared about the people whom society had rejected. A Savior who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Though Roman law kept these slaves at the bottom of the totem pole of society, in the church these slaves would be treated as equals and given a seat at the table, at the Lord's table, as brothers and sisters with everyone else in the church, including those who were free and wealthy. Secondly, a second observation very quickly, is you'll notice that the New American Standard Bible translates Paul as telling Titus to urge slaves to do certain things. Some of your English translations use other words. The word that is translated urge is found back in verse 6, and the grammar of verse 9 indicates that the verb of verse 6 is to be assumed here. And the Greek word that is translated urge back in verse 6 is the word parakaleo. Parakaleo, which means to call from along one side. In using this verb, Paul is telling Titus to come alongside of these slaves And from that position of alongsidedness, he is to deliver to them the call that is found in verses 9 and 10. 
Clearly, Paul wants the slaves in the church of Crete to feel like they have a pastor in Titus who is alongside of them in their journey as slaves. A third quick observation that we can make before we get into the text is that Paul's counsel to Titus regarding slaves assumes that slaves had power power to adorn the gospel and to actually make it attractive to people. And these slaves had a vital role to play in making that happen. If there was any group in the church that might have felt useless and powerless in God's kingdom, it would have been the slaves. Yet Paul wants Titus to address them and to let them know that they have a powerful role to play in adorning the gospel even from their position on the margins of Roman society. And what we observe in our passage today are four ways, four ways that Christian slaves are encouraged to adorn the gospel even while enslaved. Four ways that Christian slaves are encouraged in this passage to adorn the gospel even while enslaved. And the first of these ways, let's word it this way, is by being subject to their masters in every way righteously possible. By being subject to their masters in every way righteously possible. As I mentioned earlier, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 Paul tells Christian slaves that if they're able to become free legally, then they should do that. But if they're not able to become free, then his counsel here to Titus would apply. Paul tells Titus to be exhorting Christian slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything. That's what the text says. The tense here is present tense, which means that this submissiveness toward their masters is to be the characteristic pattern of their lives. The voice of this verb is what's called a middle voice, which means that this is something that a slave is to do of his own volition. The instruction here is not for slaves to be subjugated by their masters, but for slaves voluntarily to subject themselves to their masters. And they are to do this, Paul says, in everything, not just when they feel like their master deserves such submission, but even when their master is not deserving of such submission. And obviously, when you read the rest of the New Testament, you could easily infer that this expression in everything would cover everything except for those situations in which a slave is being commanded by his master to sin. But this is the counsel that is being given here. And I hope it does not bother you that Paul would tell Titus to give this counsel to slaves. Keep in mind that this counsel in Titus 2 is coming from the Apostle Paul a man who in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19 says, and I quote, Though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, that I might win the more, unquote. Paul was a free man legally, yet he gave up his freedom. 
He gave up his personal liberties so that he could win people to Christ. He did not view himself as a free person any longer, nor did he live like a free person. Living by the law of love, constrained by the gospel, Paul viewed himself as enslaved to Christ and enslaved to those whom Christ had called him to serve. And he gave up his personal freedoms to render that service to others. And this is the one from whom this counsel is coming. Also, keep in mind that Paul's counsel here is ultimately coming from Jesus Christ himself. The one who allowed himself to be bound with chains by those who arrested him and then allowed himself to suffer the humiliation of the cross and then from that lowly position of the cross, Christ wielded an influence against evil more powerful than anything that the world has ever seen. No one wants to be on a cross unjustly, but that's where the Father wanted Christ to be in order to accomplish His saving purposes. Likewise, no one in the early church would have preferred to be a slave, but in God's providence, that is where many early Christians found themselves, and from that position as slaves, Paul wants them to embrace their calling, to submit to their masters in every way they righteously can in order to serve God's gospel purposes in the lives of others. There's a second way Christian slaves are encouraged in this passage to adorn the gospel even while enslaved. Number two, by being well-pleasing and agreeable toward their masters. By being well-pleasing and agreeable toward their masters. Paul calls Christian slaves to go beyond mere submission and actually be well-pleasing to their masters. Not simply seeking to be barely acceptable to their masters, nor even simply seeking to please their masters, but literally to be well-pleasing or very pleasing to their masters. They are to be toward their masters the way Joseph was toward Potiphar, gaining their master's trust and appreciation. Just like Potiphar happily noticed that his house was blessed so long as Joseph was in his house, a Christian slave should want his master to notice himself being blessed of God because of the Christian slave who is working for him. And that Christian slave wants to be an agent of God's gracious blessing. According to the text here, slaves are to be well-pleasing in this way as opposed to being argumentative, as Paul says here in verse 9. The Greek word translated argumentative literally means speaking against, meaning that a slave is not to speak against his master to his face or behind his back, and he is not to be argumentative displaying a contrarian spirit against his master's leadership. As much as he can, a slave is to be obedient to the wishes of his master, both in his words and his actions. Christian slaves who did not give heed to this kind of counsel would end up suffering at the hand of their masters 
and they would suffer not for righteousness' sake, but because of their contrarian spirit. And they would rob themselves of the opportunity to be an influence for the gospel in their master's life. There's a third way we see in our text today that slaves are encouraged to adorn the gospel even while enslaved. Number three, by being honest and fully faithful toward their masters. By being honest and fully faithful toward their masters. In verse 6, Paul says that Christian slaves are not to be pilfering. And the Greek word that is used here speaks of dividing and setting apart something for oneself. This word speaks of misappropriation of funds, embezzlement, or stealing property or wealth without detection. And this kind of theft was very common in Roman society of Paul's day. And slaves had abundant opportunities to fudge the numbers of their record keeping in order to keep back some of their master's goods or funds for themselves. A slave running to the market for his master could easily say that he paid X amount for certain goods when in fact those items actually cost a little less than that and the slave could, without notice, pocket the extra money without his master noticing. And a slave in such a circumstance would easily justify their actions by thinking, I'm just getting a little bit back that was rightfully mine in the first place. My master is being unjust in enslaving me, so I'm simply righting this wrong and taking a little of what should have been mine anyway. This kind of stealing was often viewed by slaves as justice. And stealing was a way of taking justice into their own hands and righting, at least in small measure, a systemic wrong. But Paul says that a Christian slave is not to take justice into his own hands and do this kind of thing under any circumstances, stealing or looting is always wrong. Even when a person finds himself on the receiving end of systemic injustice, two wrongs never make a right. Instead of doing this kind of stealing, according to verse 10, a slave is to be showing all good faith in his role as a slave. At the very least, this means the opposite of stealing and being dishonest. Positively, this expression means to show himself to be completely faithful in goodness towards his master. In every imaginable way, the slave, the Christian slave, is to be found faithful to his master and should prove himself worthy of his master's highest trust. If his master were to secretly watch his slave engaging in business for him, he would find his slave to be honest and faithful and completely trustworthy at every turn, in details large and small. Just like Potiphar found Joseph to be faithful to such a degree that he trusted Joseph with all of the affairs of his house. Now keep in mind that Paul is wanting Titus to call upon Christian slaves to behave in the ways we're seeing in this text in order that they might adorn the gospel from their position as slaves 
Which brings us to the fourth and final way that Christian slaves are encouraged to adorn the gospel even while enslaved. And let's word it this way. Number four, by making adorning the gospel their driving ambition. By making adorning the gospel their driving ambition, the motive of everything that they do. Why would Paul want slaves to behave in the ways he has identified in these verses? At the end of verse 10, he says, so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. And let's think about that so that clause for a minute. In using this so that clause, Paul is not just telling Christian slaves the outcome that will result from their behavior. He's telling them that this is to be the driving motive of their behavior. In other words, they are to be submissive to their masters, not as an end in itself, but with the specific aim of adorning the doctrine of God, our Savior. They are to be well-pleasing and not argumentative. They are to show all good faith with the motive of adorning the doctrine of God. That's where their focus needs to be. Whatever else may have been motivating their behavior, such as perhaps the desire to one day become free, all other motivations are to give way to this one driving motivation of glorifying God in their circumstances by adorning the doctrine of God our Savior. Rather than sitting around and wishing their circumstances were different, Paul is telling them that they have a mission to fulfill. And Paul wants them to fulfill that mission, just like every Christian of every age in every unfortunate circumstance has had opportunity to do. After all, I'm sure that Richard Wormbrand did not ever want to be captive in a Romanian communist prison being tortured for Christ for many months. But that's where he found himself in God's providence and he sought to glorify God in those circumstances. I'm pretty sure that Johnny Erickson Tata would not have chosen to break her neck in the shallow waters of Chesapeake Bay over 50 years ago. But that's what happened in God's providence. And she has sought to glorify God in her circumstances and has done so beautifully. I'm sure the Apostle Paul would not have preferred to be imprisoned times without number and beaten with rods and lashed with a whip but this is where he found himself on numerous occasions and he sought to glorify God in the midst of those circumstances. I'm sure Joseph, I'm pretty confident that Joseph did not like being sold into slavery by his brothers, but he was in God's providence and he was greatly used of God in the circumstances that he found himself in. My point, guys, is that we don't always get to choose how we glorify God. Sometimes God's providence chooses that for us. The important thing is that we stay focused and make it our aim to adorn the doctrine of God in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. And that's what Paul is calling upon Christian slaves to do in this passage they are to behave in a certain way so that 
with the purpose that they might adorn the doctrine of God in every respect. That is to be their driving ambition that governs the way they, the way they act as a slave every day. But in this so that clause, Paul is not simply telling slaves what their driving purpose should be. He's also delivering a promise. His so that statement is actually promising a certain outcome that will result from their godly behavior. And that is that slaves behaving in this way will actually succeed in adorning the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. What is the doctrine of God our Savior? What is that? What's the teaching about God and the work of salvation that He has wrought through His Son? It's the gospel. It's the good news of salvation for hell-deserving sinners through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Paul is assuming that these Christian slaves are believing the gospel and declaring the gospel to their fellow slaves and to their masters. But his language here indicates that they must do more than merely proclaim the gospel. They must adorn the gospel that they declare with the behaviors that Paul is prescribing for them in this text. The gospel they proclaim to their masters and to their fellow slaves must come dressed in the garb of these faithful and good behaviors. The Greek word that is translated adorn is cosmeo. Cosmeo, which is the word we get our English word cosmetic from. This word speaks of putting something into an arrangement so as to make for a beautiful presentation and then to place that upon something in order to beautify or to accentuate the beauty of that thing. And Paul is telling slaves that by behaving toward their masters in the ways that he has prescribed here, their behaviors will serve as jewels that adorn the gospel and draw out and accentuate the beauty of the gospel, making it look more attractive to others. Paul says that slaves are to do this adorning of the gospel in every respect. That's what the text says. I'm sure these slaves sought to show the attractiveness of the gospel in the way they presented it verbally to people. But Paul is saying here that Christian slaves can make that adornment complete through the godly behaviors that he has called them to in their service to their masters. These Christian slaves probably felt pretty powerless in their circumstances. But Paul wants them to know that they have tremendous power in the position that they're in right now. They have the power to make the gospel more beautiful and attractive to others. And they have power to influence others to see the gospel in its proper light and to be moved to believe in Jesus. And that's where Paul wants their focus to be. Because at the end of the day, guys, it's not about these slaves and it's not about us. It's never about us. It's all about Christ and advancing the gospel cause in whatever our circumstances are and in whatever the circumstances are of these Christian slaves in first century Rome. 
and the slaves in the early church did exactly what Paul is prescribing here. They cherished a Savior who valued them and gave them a role to play in His kingdom. They have an assignment here. Assignments are not just for the free and for the wealthy and those who are in positions of societal power. Even the slaves have a role to play, and they played their role. They trusted God, and they did the kind of thing that Paul is prescribing here. And the ministry of the gospel advanced through them. And in less than 300 years, the religion of Christianity had conquered Rome. And Christian slaves played a vital role in bringing about that outcome. Amen? So that's our passage for today. But there are a handful of things that we should probably take some time to process before I finish this morning. And the first thing that we should process is the issue of the Bible's stance on slavery. Some people look at a passage like we have looked at today and they think that Paul's teaching here amounts to an endorsement of slavery as an institution along with the evils that often come along with that institution. They then look at other things that the New Testament writers say, and they conclude that the New Testament endorses the institution of slavery. I've actually been hearing that in recent weeks. But we should be very careful with this kind of conclusion. When you read through the full sweep of the New Testament, what you find is that it actually does something more profound than outlawing slavery. It first and foremost transforms the hearts of masters and slaves with the gospel, literally bringing justice and love into this institution, into the relationship between master and slave. The gospel transforms people first. For example, in Colossians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul speaks to Christian slave masters and gives them this counsel. He says in Colossians 4, 1, Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. This instruction was a radical departure from the ethic of Roman society, which was unconcerned about any justice for slaves. There was no talk of justice for slaves. But in this passage, Paul calls upon masters to give to their slaves justice, and also, it says, to give them fairness. And that word fairness means equality, which means that the Christian master was to treat his slaves with the same kind of respect that he would give to those who are free. Masters were to treat their slaves as equals before God. They were to treat them as they would those who were free. They were to treat them the way that they themselves would want to be treated if they were in their slave circumstances. And the mere fact that Paul gives this command to Christian masters 
to give justice and fairness to their slaves meant that if a Christian master failed to treat his slaves with justice and fairness, that man could be disciplined out of the church. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, Paul states a truth that whatever good thing each person does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And he then tells Christian masters to do good to their slaves, to give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. In other words, Christian masters are to seek to do good to their slaves and they are to realize that they stand on equal footing with their slaves before God, that they both will be judged by God in a future day. And on judgment day, there will be no advantage given to those who are free. In the book of Philemon, a book I would encourage you to read, we have an actual case of how the Apostle Paul dealt with a runaway slave named Onesimus. Paul led him to Christ while he was fleeing from his master. Then he sends Onesimus back to his master, who was a man that Paul happened to know, Philemon. He sends him back to his master with a letter. And in that letter, Paul pulls out all the stops and uses every persuasion to tell Philemon to do the proper thing and to receive Onesimus, I quote, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. That's in verse 16. He appeals to Philemon to forgive Onesimus for whatever crimes he had committed. He promises Philemon that he, Paul, personally would pay to Philemon anything that Onesimus owes him as a result of any wrong he had done. And he literally asks Philemon to regard Onesimus the same way that he regards Paul. View Onesimus the same way you view me, Paul says. John Piper looks at all of that in the book of Philemon and says, and I quote, I think that kind of spiritual dynamic is intended to explode the system, unquote. And I find myself very sympathetic with Piper's perspective there. Church tradition actually tells us that Philemon ended up setting Onesimus free. Onesimus went on to become a leader in the church, a bishop in the church at Ephesus following Timothy's tenure there in that church. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, this is an explosive passage. Paul lays down a stunning statement saying that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In making this statement, Paul is not denying that slaves are still slaves, nor is he denying that male and female are still the gender that they are, but he is saying that all believers in Jesus Christ have equal status before Christ, having been made sons and daughters of God 
each of them having the full rights and privileges of sonship before God. Now, these principles seem like no-brainers to us whose thinking has been informed by the Judeo-Christian ideals that we see enshrined in our scriptures. But these were radical statements and radical concepts in Paul's day. And these very principles were used by Christians in later centuries to argue against slavery. Christians, even in the early church, began taking these principles and reasoning from them and they came to conclusions. It might surprise you to know that as early as the 200s AD, Christians were on the leading edge of their culture in elevating the status of slaves and actually setting them free. One Christian writer who was born in AD 250 says, and I quote, we have no slaves but we call and consider them brethren. God would have all men equal. With Him there is neither servant or master, unquote. That's from an early Christian who was born in A.D. 250. One slave named Callistus was set free by his Christian master and later became the leader of the church of Rome a former slave, a leader of the Church of Rome for five years until his martyrdom in 223 A.D. By the time of Constantine, there was already in place a religious ritual in the church for setting slaves free. In his history of the Christian church, Philip Schaff says that by the time of Constantine, and I quote, it was felt that in a thoroughly Christianized society, there could be no place for slavery, unquote. That's how the ancient Christians were thinking in response to what they read in the New Testament. One very wealthy Christian woman named Melania was said to have emancipated 8,000 slaves in the early centuries of the church. Another wealthy Christian named Ovidius, emancipated 5,000 slaves, and others followed suit. Under the leadership of Augustine, many of the clergymen of his day released their slaves as an act of piety. The church father, Chrysostom, in the 4th century A.D., actually counseled Christians to purchase slaves, to buy slaves, in order to teach them a life skill by which they can support themselves and then to set them free. This is the way ancient Christians were applying these principles that they saw in the New Testament. Not every Christian agreed with these sentiments, but it was virtually only the Christians who were advocating for the freedom of slaves and their arguments prevailed throughout Europe According to the historian Alvin Schmidt, by the 12th century, and I quote, slaves in Europe were rare, and by the 14th century, slavery was almost unknown on the European continent, unquote. What's sad is that with the exploration of the African continent and the expansion 
of the British Empire and the racist view that people had of the inhabitants of Africa, the British revived the practice of slavery in the 17th century, ignoring the London Church Council's decision to outlaw slavery five centuries earlier. The institution of race-based slavery in the British Empire and in the American colonies actually represented a regression, a step backwards in the progress of Western history. While numerous Christians actually defended this version of slavery during this time period, many Christians took great offense at it. And they argued the same way ancient Christians argued and took a stand against it. And together with others, they brought about the demise of the slave trade and of slavery altogether. And we can be thankful for that. So in short, does the New Testament outlaw slavery? No. Does the New Testament bring justice into that institution? Yes. Does the New Testament contain teaching that would lead to slavery's ultimate demise in cultures influenced by Christian ideals? Yes. And we can be very thankful to the Lord for that. So why should we bother studying a passage like Titus 2, 9, and 10 this morning? After all, none of us gathered here are slaves. Well, it's good for us to study passages like this because it reminds us that in the history of the church, we have brothers and sisters in the history of the church who have been slaves and they've had to wrestle with these verses to figure out how to apply them in the midst of their undesirable circumstances. And we must not forget that there are actually a number of countries to this very day that still practice slavery. And some of those slaves are Christian brothers and sisters to us. Over 10% of the people living in North Korea are slaves. Sudan, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iran, and other countries in our world today have slaves, especially in the Sudan a number of Christians have been massacred and many have been taken as slaves precisely because they are slaves. So imagine being a Christian slave in Sudan today, reading this passage in Titus chapter 2. Imagine being a Christian taken captive in war, torn away from your family and from your local church and now being a slave to a Muslim master somewhere else in Sudan. Imagine how afraid you would feel. Imagine how marginalized you would feel. Imagine how easy it would be to think that your days of usefulness to God are now over. We have brothers and sisters in Sudan that are struggling with these feelings today. But when enslaved Sudanese Christians read Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 today, they would be encouraged to see that their life of usefulness to God is not over. Perhaps there is a fellow slave 
that God wants to use them to reach for Christ. Perhaps there is a Muslim master that God intends to use them to reach for Christ. And by them adorning the gospel by their faithful behaviors can be used of God as Christian slaves to bring about that amazing outcome. Either way, when we read a passage like this, it reminds us that there are actually brothers and sisters in the world today to whom this passage that we have studied this morning applies. We should remember them and pray for them that they will be encouraged and directed by passages like this to play their role in the difficult position that God has placed them in. The truth is, that the Bible is filled with stories of the differences that slaves can make. It was Abraham's servant who went and found a wife for Isaac in Genesis 24, thereby preserving the lineage of the Messiah. Joseph's greatest days of usefulness came after he was sold as a slave by his brothers. Daniel's greatest days of usefulness came after he was taken as a slave captive into Babylon, made into a eunuch, and then brought into the service of the king. And he was greatly used by God. In 2 Kings 5, we learn about a Syrian general named Naaman who had leprosy. His wife had a servant girl who had been taken captive from the people of Israel. And this servant girl, rather than stewing in bitterness and wishing ill upon her pagan master, this servant girl told Naaman about the ministry of Elijah, that he might be able to help with his leprosy. And as a result, Naaman experienced a genuine miracle from the true God and came to see that the God of Israel is the only true and living God through the instrumentality of this slave girl whom God had put in that spot for that very purpose. We also know from ancient history that Christian slaves had an impact upon their masters and masters' families in the early centuries of the church. The ancient church father, Origen, talks about how Christian slaves, and I quote, were the instruments of the conversion of their masters, especially of the women and the children whose training was frequently entrusted to them. So a totally pagan master would say to a Christian slave, I want you to train my children, be a nanny to my children, take care of my children. And this Christian slave would say, I will do that. And they were able to win them to Christ. It turns out that slaves in God's economy can prove to be extraordinarily powerful if they allow themselves to be instruments in God's hands. And that's what Paul is calling upon Christian slaves to do here in our passage this morning. Finally, a passage like what we're looking at today helps all of us in this church by teaching us to be careful that we not become too addicted to institutions of earthly power. Right now, it seems that the thing that some people fear the most is being marginalized from positions of power in society. And you know what? We Christians can obsess about that as much as anybody. 
Many of us are rightly critical of certain elements of critical race theory, but I wonder if we Christians have our own critical religion theory by which we evaluate current events in our society from the standpoint of the power balance between Christians and non-Christians in the power centers of our society. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I think sometimes that we can become guilty as Christians of thinking that Christianity's success depends upon us gaining hold of and maintaining hold on the institutions of power politically in our country. I wonder sometimes if we would know what to do with ourselves if we found ourselves completely removed from the power centers of society and pushed totally to the margins. Would we even know what to do with ourselves if that happened? A passage like Titus 2, 9 and 10 helps us because it shows us that tremendous influence for Christ can still be wielded from the margins of society. Evidently, Christians can still adorn the gospel even in the lowest positions, the most disempowered positions of a culture. And we know this is true even from the gospel, right? Think about Christ for a moment. He was born in a manger, in a feeding trough for animals because there was no room for Him in the inn. He was raised by poor parents in Nazareth, a town that no one thought anything good could come from. He was heralded by an oddly dressed forerunner with a strange diet preaching out in the wilderness far away from the halls of power. Near the end of his ministry, Jesus came riding into Jerusalem, being hailed as king. And the disciples were excited that we're going to get accepted and Jesus is going to take the reins of power politically. But just when it seemed that he was about to be welcomed by the powers that be, they rejected him and drove him out of Jerusalem and crucified him on a cross. Talk about being marginalized. Did Jesus panic and wonder how in the world he might be able now to do any good after being marginalized like this? No, he died on the cross, the cross that they gave him, and then he was buried in a tomb. But then what happened? The stone which the builders rejected, this stone became the chief cornerstone. God raised Jesus from the dead and made him the foundation stone upon which the church has been being built over the last 2,000 years. So think about this, guys. The most impactful event that has ever happened in human history happened on the margins of society. And yet nothing has ever produced the volume of good that Christ's crucifixion has produced. The greatest miracle in human history happened outside the walls of Jerusalem when Jesus was raised from the dead. And 2,000 years later, we are still feeling its impact. We need to remember the story of Christ in these times in which we live. The greatest influences for Christ are not always wielded from the halls of power, though sometimes they are. But they are often wielded from the margins of society. The greatest good that God often wants to achieve 
is not always achieved by Christians reaching the highest seats in our land, but sometimes by Christians in the lowest positions in our land. And as we see as Christians increasing evidence that the Christian worldview is being rejected and attacked, and as we see efforts by some to push Christians to the margins and the bottom of society, let us not be afraid. We should speak up and oppose any efforts to push us to the margins of society. But at the same time, we should realize that the margins of society is not a powerless place to be. You see, the proponents of critical theory and intersectionality they have no explanation for what Jesus did. He allowed himself to be pushed to the margins and placed on a cross, and from that spot, he did something that has wielded more power than all of the emperors of the world combined could ever hope to wield from their thrones. And we have opportunity to do the same, regardless of our circumstances. If first century Christian slaves in the Roman Empire could adorn the gospel that they preached through their submissive and honest and faithful behavior, then there is nothing to stop us from doing the same today, regardless of our circumstances and regardless of what may befall us in the days to come. And let's pray and ask God to help us to be ready for that and ready to be found faithful to him. Let's pray together. Lord, we live in luxurious times where often we, many of us, just have total liberty to decide how do I want to glorify God? What do I want my circumstances to be? Lord, there are many, even in our midst, that are dealing with hardships they would not have wished upon anybody. And throughout Christian history, there have been brothers and sisters who have found themselves in dire circumstances that were brought upon them that they would not have wished upon anyone else. I pray that you would help us in our present circumstances, in our coming circumstances, to be found faithful and to not lose sight of our calling from you to adorn the gospel and to show forth its beauty before the eyes of a watching world. And if we can do that while standing before a Supreme Court and letting our voice be heard, if we can wield righteous good through the votes that we cast and through the things we say, seek to let our voice be heard in the halls of power, then help us to be faithful to do that. If circumstances unfold in a way that we are pushed from the halls of power and we are reduced to the lowest spots in society, then help us to be faithful there.
knowing that in the topsy-turvy world of the gospel, that you are in the business of confounding the mighty. And if you could take Jesus being placed upon a cross outside the walls of the city of Jerusalem and being crucified there, marginalized in that way, and use what He did there to bring about tremendous good that we still feel today, then you can use us whatever our circumstances may be, no matter how high or how low. Whatever our circumstances, Lord, may our focus not be on us and on our comfort, but may our focus always be on you and how we can serve your purposes in this world. As we look forward to the blessed appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray this for me. I pray this for my brothers and sisters, Lord. We also pray for our brothers and sisters in various parts of the world that are in circumstances that would blow some of us away. Having to make excruciating decisions and wrestle through passages like what we've looked at today. Lord, we lift up these brothers and sisters and ask that you would encourage them, that you would be with them, and that they would feel your presence in their lives and your pleasure in them, and that you would astound the principalities and powers by the ways that you use them in their weakened positions that they've been given, and thereby bring greater glory to your name. You're a good God who takes the foolish things of the world, the weak things of the world, the nobodies of the world to confound the strong and the mighty and those who think they're wise and do that in all of our lives, Lord. And we will give you all the praise and all the glory for it's in Jesus' name that we pray and all God's people said.